The Holy Gospel according to Matthew, the 20th chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. Jesus said to the disciples, The kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for the usual daily wage, he sent them into his vineyard. When he went out about nine o'clock, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace, and he said to them, You also go into the vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. When he went out again about noon and about three o'clock, he did the same. And about five o'clock, he went out and found others standing around. And he said to them, why are you standing here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you also go into the vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his manager, call the laborers and give them their pay beginning with the last and then going to the first. When those hired about five o'clock came, each of them received the usual daily wage. Now when the first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received the usual daily wage, and when they received it, they grumbled against the landowner, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to them, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for the usual daily wage? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last the same as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first and the first will be last. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Franz Kafka is one of my favorite authors. He wrote a story called The Castle. In this story, The Castle, the protagonist, known only as the letter K, arrives in a village and struggles to gain access to the mysterious authorities who govern it from a castle. Kafka died before he could finish the work, but he suggested it could end with Kay dying in the village and the castle notifying him on his deathbed that his legal claim to live in the village was not valid, yet Taking certain auxiliary circumstances into account, he was now permitted to live and work there, delivered on his deathbed. Dark and at times very, very surreal, the castle is understood to be about alienation, unresponsive bureaucracy, the frustration of trying to conduct business with non-transparent, seemingly arbitrary controlling systems, and the futile pursuit of an unattainable goal. When I read this story for the first time in high school, it stirred profound anxiety in my stomach because I could feel Kay's mounting frustration, despair, and exhaustion as he literally goes in circles. The reality that Kay makes no progress and sees no resolution is suffocating. The most fascinating thing about this story, in my opinion, 
is that it ends literally in mid-sentence. While still alive, Kafka confided in his friend that he had no intention of resolving the story before his death. There is even a movie based on this story. It, too, is called The Castle, and it ends abruptly also, mid-sentence. No resolution. In fact, I remember thinking that my CD had skipped because this was in the, the days of CDs way back when. So abruptly did the castle end. This passage from Jonah, while one of my all-time favorite passages from the Bible to preach on, has absolutely no resolution. The book of Jonah ends, but it ends with a question, and we don't really know what happens next. We're familiar enough with this passage and the story of Jonah. This passage we hear today is the very last passage in the book of Jonah. The book abruptly ends. What we see today is an impressive, full-bore rant. Jonah is throwing a grade-A temper tantrum, causing parents everywhere to shudder, recalling child-rearing years of similar tantrums when a child protests that something just isn't fair or that justice has not been appropriately served. Jonah scores high for drama, but low in grasping the depth of God's grace. But we'll come back to that. The book opens with God commanding Jonah to go to that great city of Nineveh and prophesy against it, telling Jonah to proclaim to the Ninevites, Thus saith the Lord, I got a lot of problems with you people. You are wicked, and I will therefore destroy you. So Jonah, being the obedient prophet that he is, runs away to Spain. Not a bad choice to escape to, in all honesty. So he gets high marks for his selection of escape destination. However, en route to Spain, God causes a great storm to come up, threatening the ship, bearing Jonah away. The mariners are afraid, which took on a different meaning when I preached this text in Seattle. A direct exchange ensues, and Jonah finally tells the sailors to cast him overboard, since everybody already knows that he is running away from God and God's orders because he had told them so. Low marks to Jonah regarding his ability to keep his business to himself whilst on the lamb from God the Almighty. The sailors try their best to outroll the storm, but finally throw Jonah overboard, where he is promptly swallowed up by a great fish. Legend has turned this great fish into a whale, a gentle creature who has gotten a bad rap ever since. Three days, Jonah remains in the belly of this fish, where he prays to God for deliverance, after which he is vomited up onto the beach. At this point, God repeats God's command to Jonah, instructing him a second time to go to that great city of Nineveh and prophesy against it, saying that the Lord is displeased with them because of their wickedness, having learned his lesson and not wanting again to be swallowed up by a great fish or worse. Jonah obeys and marches into the great city and proclaims in 40 days, this city will be destroyed by God because you are wicked people. And the people of Nineveh believe him. And they repent, and they put on sackcloth, and they fast. And furthermore, they even put on sackcloth on their animals and make them fast, even though the animals had done no wrong. 
And God notices. God changes God's mind. God decides to show mercy instead of judgment, but this is too much for Jonah. Wait just a minute, he protests. This is not fair. You said you were going to destroy them. I hate those people, and I was all ready to stand by and watch a flood, or some plagues, or maybe fire and brimstone. You've done all of these things before. What's one more time? But now you let them off the hook? Is this a joke? What kind of God are you? God replies, is it right for you to be angry? Just who do you think you are? So God teaches Jonah a lesson by providing a bush to shield him from the hot noon sun. And Jonah is very thankful and calms down. But then God sends a worm to destroy this bush, and Jonah's fury is rekindled, and he has had it this time. Here, Jonah gets high marks for drama. He exclaims, oh my God, just let me die. Such drama. God says to him, does your anger here make any sense? Jonah says, yes, so much that I wish I were dead. And God replies, ironic. Don't you think that you are angry about this worm and this bush? Although you did nothing to create them. So do you now understand why I spared the thousands of people and even their animals in Nineveh whom I created by my own hand? And the book ends. Not mid-sentence as with the castle, but with a question. Unresolved. What does Jonah do next? Does he continue thrashing around on the ground, insisting that this just isn't fair, continuing his theatrical performance of wronged Jonah with anguished cries of, please just let me die? Do the people of Nineveh continue to be God-fearing people, or do they revert to their old wicked ways? The book of Jonah ends, but the story is unresolved. We relate in so many deep and powerful and profound ways. Our world today offers no resolution. Life seems to hang suspended in mid-sentence. Trailer parks and neighborhoods in Cedar Rapids are still devastated from the derecho storm in August. People and animals flee fires on the West Coast, while people and animals flee floods on the Gulf Coast. Lives are on hold. Cries for racial justice still hang suspended in the air. Questions regarding how education and work and sports can take place safely are still unresolved. Our Supreme Court is suddenly unresolved with the tragic death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Even our impending national election threatens to offer little resolution, as our sitting president has implied he will not honor election results. We chuckle at Jonah's indifference to the deaths of 120,000 innocent people, and yet seem strangely detached from the deaths of over 200,000 innocent people in our own country. My students struggle. My children struggle. Yours do too. 
So much hangs in the air. So much lacks resolution. Our world is in the belly of the fish, crying out to God for mercy and deliverance. The only resolution to all of this must be God's grace, which is exactly what Jonah fails to grasp and what we so often fail to grasp, that God's grace somehow still exists in a very unfair and unresolved world. Jonah is operating out of a sense of scarcity, causing him to panic, afraid that God somehow does not have enough grace for both him and the Ninevites, not to mention their animals. This is why people have hoarded during this pandemic, emptying shelves of toilet papers and flour, giving little regard to neighbor. Like Jonah, our faith often operates out of a sense of scarcity, afraid that there's not enough to go around. When we feel as if there is not enough, we take all we can for ourselves. I remember this feeling when I got pregnant with my second son, terrified that I would not have enough love for a second child, certainly not as much love as with the first child, until Jacob was born and my heart grew to make room for him. Such is the mercy and grace of God, forever swelling like a mother's heart to include all her children and even their pets. Dear Jonah, there is enough grace to go around extending even to your despised Ninevites. Dear friends, there is enough grace to go around extending even to your most despised enemy, even if that enemy is yourself. Is that fair? No. But maybe we can stop throwing a tantrum that this just isn't fair and instead rejoice in a God who can love both me and my enemy. Why does this threaten us so? Is the deepest fear that God could have enough grace for my enemy or for me? Plenty of times I feel it's not fair that God loves me, that I am unworthy and a worm, but it is nonetheless true. God's justice belongs to God, even when we protest that it is not fair. In my house, I often have little interest in my son's sense of fairness. I would wager that God has little interest in our sense of fairness. The only resolution in creation is the grace of God, which delivers this entire world from disease, disaster, and brokenness. Not only the human beings in creation, but all of it including the animals. God's story does not end mid-sentence or hang suspended in the air. It is finished with the words cried out from the cross where Jesus died for all of creation, the final word being love, full stop, end of story. Amen.